an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Thank you, Scott. Um, and thank you for the uh, invitation to be here, um, both to Dr. Hahn and to the university. It's good to come home. Um, last night, I was in Worcester, uh, Massachusetts, giving a talk at Assumption College, a different talk than this one, and I was introduced as a romance expert. <laughs> I'm going to go home and tell my wife that. Um, but thinking about it, I realized it's probably less dangerous than being introduced as a moral theologian. Um, for a long time, I had on the door to my office um, at Catholic University a little comic. Um, it pictured two men, unfortunately, standing in the flames of hell. And one turns to the other and says, hey, I know you. We were in the same ethics department. Um, that comic was given to me by my current dean, who teaches liturgy. Um, moral theology, the, one of the disciplines where the axiom, those who can't do teach, rings very true. All of that said, um, let me just give you a piece of background on the um, paper I'm going to read parts of to you. Um, I'm going to have to excerpt just because of constraints of time. Um, I was asked to write this paper for a new journal in Catholic moral theology um, to a, uh, that's going to cover significant figures who have impacted American Catholic moral theology in, the re in recent decades. I've been asked to do the piece on John Paul II. Um, so I'm, I'm going to spend a little time at the beginning talking about why it's difficult to talk about um, a figure like Pope John Paul II. There is nothing deader than a dead pope, or so say the cynics of Rome who have watched the parade of pontiffs who have passed through the walls of the Vatican over the course of years. Only time will tell just how lasting will be the imprint left by Pope John Paul II on the church, but early indications some six years after his death are that the influence from his exceptionally long and prodigious pontificate continued to be felt throughout the church by both its members and in its institutional life. His global travels in 104 apostolic journeys, which took him to 129 different countries, his charismatic personality and his multilingual eloquence impacted millions and redefined the image of the papacy for the modern world. The international interest in his upcoming beatification testifies not only to the witness provided by his own personal holiness, but by the ongoing global impact of the late Polish pontiff. Biographers tout the geopolitical impact of his papacy through his defense of human rights and freedom and his personal interventions around the globe which helped to encourage democracy in much of Latin America as well as paying, playing an important role in the peaceful downfall of communism in Europe and the former Soviet Union. His pontificate did, did much to heal the wounds of Christian anti-Semitism, to foster closer relationships with Jews members of non-Christian religions, and with members of other Christian churches. His teaching on the struggle between a culture of life and a culture of death has not only shaped ethical teaching and discussion, but has become part of our political discourse on life issues in the United States. His call for a new evangelization remains programmatic for the church as it moves into the new millennium. 
His teaching in the area of marriage and family are the subject of an ongoing study by a worldwide institute that bears his name. His catechesis, known as the Theology of the Body, continue to generate both wide popular interest and growing scholarly scrutiny. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Yet not unlike the retreat which Carol Boitiwa preached to the household of Paul VI, John Paul II's pontificate could be described in the biblical language of a sign of contradiction. The relationship of his papal teaching to the renewal called for by the Second Vatican Council has been the subject of intense debate. Some commentators see the late Pope's work as a retreat from the reforms of the council and a retrenchment of older preconciliar ideas. Advocates of the late Pope's teaching counter that his pontificate represents instead a critical discernment and purification of the council's vision, which had been obscured in the years immediately following it. In some ways, those competing readings map onto larger fault lines of theological disagreement, which existed both during the council, but particularly in its aftermath. Those lines were set ablaze by the explosive debate which ensued after Pope Paul VI's encyclical Humanae Vitae concerning the issue of contraception. This fierce disagreement quickly spread simultaneously to other questions of sexual ethics and to questions of fundamental moral theology. Moral theology in the United States emerged from the preconciliar stasis of a field still largely dominated by neo-Thomism and the manuals of moral theology to the center of this post-humani vitae storm. This shift into the limelight of public controversy paralleled the movement of Catholics in the United States from a somewhat enclosed subculture to positions of prominence in American culture and political life. Organized public protests to its teaching, an aggressive rethinking of received positions in the area of sexuality, and the emergence of new revisionist approaches to the discipline characterized American Catholic moral theology after the encyclical. Countering these developments was the work of a small but influential group of philosopher theologians who used a revised natural law theory to defend received positions in the area of sexuality and moral theory. This highly polarized climate was the place where John Paul II's teaching was heard, but only to varying degrees actually received. The effort to force John Paul II's teaching into the confines of the existing disagreements or into newer debates sparked by them in American Catholic moral theology has been in many ways unsuccessful. In part, this is because neither the revisionist nor the traditionalist camps could account for the anthropological depth or coherence of this teaching. Efforts by proponents or critics to invoke the late Pope's thought often failed to do justice to the many facets of his presentation of the human person, scripture, action theory, Christology, gift theory, and experience. His multifaceted presentation generates a kind of coherence, generates, excuse me, a kind of excess which overflows shallow categorizations or reductions of his thought to pre-existing positions. It is precisely in this anthropological excess which has the form of the human person illuminated by the encounter with Christ, that much of the continuing appeal of the late Pope's thought, both to students and scholars, lies. I'm going to argue that it's precisely that anthropological depth, evidenced in different areas of John Paul II's moral teaching, that accounts for both the propensity of critics and proponents alike to mischaracterize it 
and to miss its ongoing appeal to those who are less invested in reading it within the confines of other controversies. So I'm going to proceed by first saying a word or two, and I'm going to condense a bit here, about some of the methodological difficulties entailed in dealing with a scholar pope like John Paul II or like Pope Benedict XVI, um, and some of their, the necessary limitations of scope that that entails. I'm then going to examine two case studies, two concrete examples of John Paul II's moral teaching where his thought, I think, has been mischaracterized in varying degrees in the effort to utilize it to plug it into existing debates with the result that something of its depth and coherence has been missed. Those two areas are the theology of the body catechesis and his teaching in the encyclical Veritatis Splendor. So first, a few kind of methodological disclaimers. To consider John Paul II in the context of other significant figures who have influenced the field of US Catholic moral theology, again, the kind of larger project that this um, piece is part of, is to run headlong into dissimilarities and dissonance. One could even ask if his inclusion in such a group is justified given the very different nature of his influence. While others have shaped the field by virtue of the substance of their thought, the questions they've pursued, the late Pope did so in part simply because of his authority and office. And that's true in a few distinct ways. Let me just, again, briefly mention a few. First, in a general sense, one could ask whether Pope John Paul II's work would have commanded all that much attention, at least outside of Polish-speaking circles, had he not been elevated to the chair of Peter. In other words, have people paid attention to this thought, to this teaching, because of its own intrinsic merit or because of its promulgation by the church's universal pastor? Second, a second related and complicating feature of including John Paul II in this kind of a list is that more than many of his predecessors, he used that very authority, the authority of his office and teaching, to directly impact and reshape the field of moral theology in ways that individual theologians could not. The chair of Peter served him in some ways as a kind of bully pulpit from which to direct the field of moral theology. A third problem with including John Paul II into this kind of consideration has to do with the genre of papal teaching itself. While the work of an individual scholar or theologian, Carol Wojtyla, for example, as a private philosopher, is just that, um, popes are never simply right as individuals, even when they author much of their own work, as Pope John Paul II clearly did, as Pope Benedict clearly does. Many papal texts are written in part by other persons, or at least vetted by large groups and reshaped by groups of persons, which exceeds the typical kind of feedback scholars get in trying to write and produce their own work. So in some ways, comparing John Paul II's thought to the thought of others is comparing the work of a group to the work of individuals. A fourth problem in analyzing the thought of John Paul II in particular in this context stems from the very prolific nature of his writing and teaching. Unlike individual theologians in whom you can trace lines of development, coherent uh, strands of argumentation, the very universal nature of the Pope's ministry 
demanded an equally universal nature to his teaching and work. It's very difficult to, and especially John Paul II, who had such a long and particularly uh, prodigious pontificate in terms of his teaching. So I'm not going to be able to deal with the whole of his thought. I'm going to have to highlight and focus on a couple of distinct areas. So my effort is to try to locate a couple of areas in the late Pope's thought in terms of content and method where I think his teaching has not been adequately understood because it simply overflows the categories of those trying to uh, engage it, utilize it in various ways. So it's in the excess of ideas that elude efforts to categorize or pigeonhole his thought that the late Holy Father's thought and its appeal to students and scholars starts to come clear. While it may be the case that it was his office which initially drew many people to consider his work, its authority alone doesn't explain the fruitfulness of his ideas or his teaching. Regardless of how one views John Paul II's relationship to the Second Vatican Council, it is apparent that he tried to respond to and exemplify its own moral teaching in his own moral teaching, many of the marks of renewal of which it spoke. Moral theology, the council had said, needs, quote, livelier contact with the mystery of Christ and to be more thoroughly nourished by scriptural teaching. Engagement with various of various kinds with, with scripture through meditation, analysis, exegesis, even phenomenological readings, and the preoccupation with the human person and the mystery of Christ permeate the late Pope's teaching. This biblical and Christological focus converged in his understanding of the human person. The ideas of Gaudium et Spes 22 and 24, that Christ reveals us to ourselves and that human fulfillment is found in the sincere gift of self, form hermeneutical keys to the corpus of his thought. It is largely because of that Christological anthropology the differences that I've mentioned in terms of genre, authorship, and authority, notwithstanding, that John Paul II's teaching continues to generate interest and to reward careful study. And again, as I'm going to try to argue, the excess of Pope John Paul II's thought, which so often eludes both his proponents and his critics, has this form of the human person as a dynamic embodied subject illuminated by Christ. So two case studies. The first, the theology of the body. Certainly one area where interest in the late Pope's teaching has continued unabated after his death has been the catechesis given over the first years of his pontificate which have come to be known as the theology of the body. Popular presentations on this teaching have mushroomed and have become a staple of many religious education and theology on tap style presentations. At the same time, both the catechesis themselves and their popularizations have garnered a growing amount of scholarly attention as scholars have sought to understand and critically evaluate their appeal. What sometimes goes unnoticed and what I'm going to try to uh, highlight is the common ground that popular promoters and critics of the theology of the body find in reducing the subject matter of the catechesis largely to a discussion and defense of traditional Catholic teaching on sex. The brand name of popularization of the theology of the body in the United States belongs to Christopher West. 
He's become a kind of one-man cottage industry of seminars, audio and video, and print products on the catechesis. In addition to these, West has produced numerous books on the subject. In these works, West sees the catechesis as offering a kind of gospel of sex to a contemporary culture solely, sorely in need of such a message. He believes that the heart of this good news is John Paul II's view of the centrality of marriage and sex within the Christian message. He claims, quote, of all the ways that God chooses to reveal his life and love in the created world, John Paul II is saying marriage, enacted and consummated by sexual union, is the most fundamental, unquote. Indeed, marriage and sex disclose the very structure of Christian revelation. They are the grammar through which God's plan is made known to us. Within this gospel of the body, the sexual drive for West takes on roles traditionally ascribed to grace. Quote, God gave us sexual desire to be the power to love as he loves, so that we can participate in divine life and fulfill the very meaning and being of, his exist of our existence. That's from his good news about sex. In a later work, commenting on Pope Benedict's the, the 16th teaching on love, West compares Eros to, quote, the fuel of a rocket meant to launch us into the stars and beyond, unquote. Reviews of West's account of the theology of the body have been mixed, and for good reason. It is undoubtedly true that he has been successful in increasing the level of interest to the, in the late Pope's teaching and creating a more positive view of the church's teaching on sexuality among many Catholics, both young and old. Much of his message has positioned John Paul II's teaching as a positive and appealing presentation of the goodness and beauty of sex in a culture which has shown itself prone to fascination with the topic. In particular, this work has helped many parish and diocesan religious education programs again regain a voice relating the faith to questions of sexuality after these programs had been debilitated first by internal church dissent and disagreement in the polemics which followed Humanae Vitae, and then more recently by the wave of sexual abuse scandals which have rocked the church. So West's work has done a lot that is good, there's no doubt. However, scholars who have examined West's account of the theology of the body have raised significant questions about it. They argue that it gives marriage and sex within it an undue preeminence in the Christian life. It, romant it romanticizes sex within marriage, making it bear a weight of meaning and experiential fulfillment that it cannot carry. And in varying ways, one scholar calls this a myopic fixation on the ordinary. Another speaks of the theology of the body's extraordinarily romanticized view of, self, of sexual self-giving. In varying ways, it seems to fail to come to grips with the reality of sin in present human existence. There is disagreement as to to what degree these problems are unique to West or whether they have their roots in John Paul II and are simply amplified or exacerbated by him. That problem becomes more pronounced, I think, with recent scholars who up to this point, I think, have been very careful in distinguishing between the work of Christopher West and the thought of Pope John Paul II, people like my colleague Bill Madison and David Cloutier. In a recent article they've written, 
um, together, they seem to kind of throw in the towel on this effort. They write, while we, speaking of some of the criticism that West's work has generated, they write, while we generally, generally agree with such critiques, we cannot help but recognize the dominance and even major ecclesial support West's work in person and in books has achieved. Thus, our treatment of West and the theology of the body here is not meant to claim that West necessarily gets John Paul II right, but rather that West's reading of the Pope is a not, un a not unreasonable interpretation of the Pope's work, including possible weaknesses, and b especially likely to be a common means of receiving the theology of the body in the church, since few lay people are likely to slug through 600 pages of talks. That I think is unfortunate because it seems to cede to Chris West the role of, the of being the official interpreter of the theology of the body for the church in the United States. I'll tell you in a moment why I think that's a mistake. A full evaluation of West's work or their treatment by critics is beyond the scope of what I'm doing. That's part of what I was doing at Assumption College last night, which won me the honorary title of romance expert for some reason. In particular, the charge that both he and the late Pope grant sexual intercourse a re romanticized preeminence in the marriage relationship deserves its own examination. However, the argument that John Paul II and West share a common starting point and purpose in regard to contemporary culture, in regard to their examinations of the body, I think deserves to be challenged. To argue that both are simply trying to harness contemporary culture's sexual fascination in their presentations is to read John Paul II through the lenses of West's popularized portrayal. This conflation of West and the late pontiff has at least two significant problems. First, it assumes that both share a common stance in regard to the sexually saturated culture of the Western world, particularly the United States. This overlooks the fact that John Paul II had a far more nuanced and critical stance toward that culture than does West. Think, for example, of John Paul II's analyses of the culture of life versus the culture of death in Evangelium Vitae. And it ignores the degree to which West's own reading of the Pope is at times conditioned by the Freudian pansexualism of his own American culture. Second, and more basically, it tends to reduce the whole point and content of the theology of the body of catechesis to being, quote, all about sex. It is in that reduction that one finds a surprising common ground between West's popularizations and some of the theology of the body's sharpest revisionist critics. Others, too, have tended to equate key concepts from the theology of the body with shills for traditional positions on sex. The nuptial meaning of the body for Margaret Farley is simply new language for excluding divorced and remarried Catholics from a sexual relationship in a second marriage. Similarly, Lisa Sowell Cahill contends that the intersubjectivity of sex captured in the notion of the language of the body is ultimately stripped of its real meaning and implications by a prior commitment to the norm of humani vitae. For biblical scholar Luke Timothy Johnson, the whole point of the theology of the body, in spite of the effort to use biblical texts and language and phenomenological analysis of experience, is to offer a vain apologia for Pope Paul VI's failed 1968 encyclical. Johnson writes, John Paul's conferences finally come down to a concentration on the transmission of life, 
By the time he reaches his explicit discussion of Humani Vitae, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that every earlier textual choice and phenomenological reflection has been geared to a defense of Pope Paul VI encyclical. However, there is virtually nothing in this defense that is strengthened by the conferences preceding it. Michael Lawler and Todd Salzman similarly read the theology of the body as a defense of natural, that is procreative, complementarity, with a view to the exclusion of contraception, reproductive technologies, and sex between partners of the same sex. As such, the theology of the body is limited in that it is merely, quote, a heterosexual theology of the body for reproduction, unquote, which does not take into account the experience of persons who do not fit this pattern. What is needed are multiple theologies of the body, which can account for the situations of others, quote, single people, widows and widowers, celibates and homosexuals, unquote. Both West in his popularizing exposition of the theology of the body and scholars who are critical of it seem to agree on a number of things. First, they concur that the catechesis, both in their key concepts and their overall sweep, have sex as their primary point. Second, they also agree that in spite of their novel language and tone, that the catechesis of the theology of the body are largely a defense of traditional sexual norms. For West, this is a good thing. The catechesis represent the church's perennial wisdom offered in a, compositive, a positive and compelling form for contemporary culture. For revisionist critics, this reveals their problematic and potentially deceptive nature. It is, to quote Lawler and, and Salzman one more time, quote, the old wine of biologism, physicalism, and classicism of the manuals of moral theology in the new wineskin of Thomistic personalism and the theology of the body, unquote. What can be made of this rather surprising common ground on the part of those who are so otherwise at odds in their assessment of the theology of the body and its value? It must be conceded that this unexpected agreement has support from some obvious features of the catechesis. Clearly, issues of sexuality were a major concern of Carol Wojtyla's writing these reflections. We now know that they were written in Polish, um, thanks to the work of Mikhail Waldstein. Um, in writing these reflections that he later gave as general audiences during the first years of his reign as Pope John Paul II. His philosophical and pastoral work had convinced him for the need of a new exposition of Catholic teaching and sexuality. This conviction was reinforced by his experience on the so-called birth control commission of Paul VI, the firestorm of disagreement which followed the encyclical and the impact of the sexual revolution that he could see in his contact with the Western world and to some degree in his own native communist Poland. The fact that the theology of the body closes with a series of audiences that reflect on the moral norm proposed by Humani Vitae adds credibility to the charge that this issue was the catalyst and telos of the theology of the body from its inception. But a closer examination suggests there is more to this issue than meets the eye. Certainly, sex and ethical norms concerning it are concerns, are topics of the theology of the body, but they are not the only such topics. Both in its particular components and as a whole, the theology of the body's focus is on the whole person, of which sex is but one integral component. In regard to particular features of the catechesis, it is worth noting 
that its key concepts that I've alluded to are by no means univocal in describing features of sexual activity or expression. Scholars have argued, for example, that the spousal meaning of the body has to do with far more than its capacity for sexual self-gift. It has to do rather with the human capacity for self-donation and communion, regardless of one's state in life, whether single, married, or celibate. In this regard, it can be understood as an integral component of the human capacity for friendship and for love that's central to the moral teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas. Likewise, the language of the body has to do with the whole range of the body's capacity to communicate its sacramentality and gift character in nonverbal ways, particularly in the state of original innocence. One can also use it to understand the body's inherent communicability in and through the experience of suffering. Sexual union, which communicates a promise of fidelity and unconditional self-gift, is simply a unique and privileged instance of the wider communicability of the body. Furthermore, the treatment of sex in the theology of the body is not focused on is not merely focused on questions of sexual activity. It is also very much concerned with the status of sexual difference, the question of masculinity and femininity. Even some critics of the theology of the body pick up on this concern, though they tend to read John Paul II as advocating a narrow understanding of sex complementarity, in which men and women are understood to be incomplete without each other, and in which women are simultaneously romantically exalted, but seen as subordinate to men. While the late Holy Father does use the language of complementarity, he does so in a way to describe the way in which the originality of men and women as persons correspond to one another. If the body reveals the person, then the bodily differences of men and women reveal unique and original ways of existing as a person within their shared humanity. The categories in which sexual difference are described here and in his later and more weighty apostolic letter, Molieris Dignitatum, are Trinitarian. Personal difference disclosed through mutual relation within an underlying unity of nature. This concern with sexual difference helps bring into focus the more basic anthropological thrust of the theology of the body. While John Paul II used the language of a theology of the body, he also characterized these audiences on numerous occasions as an effort to elaborate what he called an adequate anthropology. In some ways, one sees in these audiences many of the concerns of his work as a professional philosopher carried forward. The self-awareness and self-determination of the acting person expressed through the bodily dimension of personal existence of which sex difference is typically a key component. It is for this reason that the late Pope's analysis of original solitude at the heart of human life and existence is a key to the whole of the theology of the body. Already in the command given by God not to eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, the transcendence of the human person is evident in the freedom to eat or not eat of the tree, which is the subject of God's command. This theological notion of transcendence has its roots in Wojtyla's early study of the thought of St. John of the Cross. From the doctor of Fontiveros, Wojtyla imbibed the idea that faith is not merely something one has, it must be consciously lived through praxis by which one grows and bears fruit. This practice is, the root, is at the root of the transcendence of the human person 
and it's expressed vertically in his or her relationship with God and horizontally in the relationship between human persons and the sexes. In the theology of the body, this focus on the self-transcendence of the person is joined to phenomenological analysis of action and experience and used as a method to mine dimensions of biblical texts often untouched by more standard exegesis. The solitude of the self-aware subject addressed by God, the longing for communion, the discovery of oneself in the encounter with an irreducible other, the freedom found in the gift of oneself in love. This highly textured biblical analysis is then stretched across a theological tableau, the triptych of human existence as created, fallen, and imbued with the grace of redemption. The template of the drama of redemption adds an existential urgency to the analysis. The catechesis reverberate with the existential weight of human freedom confronted by the call of God, the struggle of the human heart torn between the poles of love and inordinate desire, and the longing for the freedom of love given and received. The reader of the catechesis is invited to identify in and find his or her own experience illuminated by the biblical texts under consideration. The experience that they capture well is that of the Christian who seeks to turn his or her faith into the daily praxis of what St. Paul calls life in the spirit, lived within the limits of our fallen historical existence. The, the theology of the body thus offers an experientially focused method of reading scripture, which envisions the human person as an icon illuminated by the mysteries of creation, the fall, and redemption. That this iconic anthropology has application to issues beyond sexual activity and morality was noticed by both John Paul II himself and by scholars interested in his thought. In the concluding audience of the theology of the body, he noted, one must immediately observe, in fact, that the term theology of the body goes far beyond the content of the reflections presented here. These reflections do not include many problems belonging with regard to their object to the theology of the body. For example, the problem of suffering and death, so important to the biblical message. Though he himself did not develop this anthropology in that direction, scholars have found aspects of the theology of the body to be relevant to the teaching of his 1984 apostolic letter, Salvici Dolores, in articulating a theology of the suffering body. Others have found these reflections to be relevant in articulating an account of the bodily presence and moral agency of the unborn, the comatose, the mentally handicapped, and other vulnerable persons. Still others have explored the fruitfulness of the theology of the body for a range of issues, not just sex or suffering, but vocation, revelation, technology, work, prayer, and eschatology. This diverse range of issues and applications to which the theology of the body lends itself, as well as its theological depth in treating the human person in the panorama of salvation history, belies its reduction to a catchy new way to present old Catholic views of sex. Interestingly, this simplistic reading is shared by both enthusiastic popularizers of the catechesis like West and revisionist critics. The theology of the body certainly does treat sex, and in so doing, attempt to defend traditional norms, but it does so in the context of developing a larger vision of the person called to make a gift of him or herself through the body, a gift lived in differing ways in the single, celibate, 
and married states. This gift character of the human vocation, integral to creation, is debilitated by sin, but progressively recovered through the healing work of grace made possible by union with Christ. As such, it is better read as a presentation of the gospel in which sex plays a part rather than a gospel of sex. Case study number two, Veritatis Splendor. If reception of the theology of the body was skewed by its being commandeered by differing sides of the debate over the teaching of Humanae Vitae and other traditional sexual norms, then the encyclical Veritatis Splendor was widely seen as little more than the late pope taking sides in the controversies which that very same encyclical had spawned. This reading was shared by revisionists who believed themselves to be targeted by the teaching and by their traditionalist opponents who saw it as vindication for their own positions. The problem with this reading is that it fixates on the second chapter of the document and largely dismisses the first and third chapters to the status of mere window dressing or paranesis. A casualty of this narrow reading is the meditation on the encounter with Jesus and the rich young man in chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel, which makes the biblical motif of the call to discipleship the foundation for reading the rest of the document. Revisionist treatments of the document, while applauding John Paul II's stand against the relativism and individualism of the wider culture, found both its center of gravity and its Achilles heel in its treatment of technical questions of moral theology. Thus, Richard McCormick focused on the analysis of the moral object as the key to the document. But the fact that the encyclical makes, quote, repeated appeals to actions wrong ex objecto does not aid analysis, rather it hides it, unquote. Charles Curran objected to what he saw as the overwhelming focus on law in the document, especially laws which take the form of objectionless moral norms. As was the case for McCormick, the key issue is how the act is described. John Paul II's moral absolutes are merely formal norms. Everyone agrees that murder is wrong because murder is by definition unjustified or wrongful killing." Unquote. A second common charge leveled against Veritatis Splendor by revisionists was that it mischaracterized their positions. Curran makes this claim in regard to its presentation of a variety of issues. McCormick gives a wide survey of literature critical of the document which echoes the contention that the document mischaracterizes proportionalism in the positions which it opposes. Others press that claim further. The document, they say, without naming any specific authors, describes positions with, with which no one would agree and then rejects those positions. A classic case of creating and toppling straw men. In the words of James Gaffney, quote, proportionalism as presented here by the Pope is quite simply a bugaboo." Unquote. Still other revisionist critics of the encyclical see John Paul II's primary point as an assertion of church authority to quash dissent to tra traditional positions. In other words, the real issue is ecclesiological, the nature of the church and the function of authority within it. For McCormick, this ecclesiology, that of John Paul II, is clearly restorationist, envisioning a view of the church, quote, as a pyramid where truth and authority flow uniquely from the pinnacle, unquote, as opposed to Vatican II's concentric model where reflection, the reflection of all must flow from the periphery to the center if the wisdom resident in the church is to be reflected persuasively and prophetically out to the world. 
Curran faults the document for its assumption that the hierarchical magisterium just has the truth, rather than attending to the role of reason and experience in arriving at the truth. These analyses of the primary point of the document map very neatly onto the contentious debates over method in moral theology, which emerged in the storm that followed the encyclical Humani Vitae. The historical connection is cemented by the suggestion that John Paul II's real point in Veritatis Splendor was the fact that the debate over moral norms regard, was the, in fact, the debate over moral norms regarding sex in general and contraception in particular. Some scholars make this contention historically. That is, Humanivite was a catalyst for the growth of dissent, of which Veritatis Splendor was aimed. Others see it as a recurring obsession of John Paul II, which manifests itself in this document. Interestingly, some of the chief opponents of revisionist thought share a very similar read of the primary concerns of the document. Thus, Germain Griset locates the heart of the document in its depiction of the idea of moral absolutes as a truth taught by revelation. This for Griset is a stake aimed at the heart of dissenting positions that cannot be evaded. Attempts to reduce such moral norms to the status of generalities regarding love, guidelines for the judgments of conscience, discrete acts incapable of reversing a fundamental option, or the idea that such norms indicate only premoral or ontic evil are weighed against revelation in the form of biblical texts and found wanting. In the end, such dissenting theologians have three choices. Quote, to admit that they have been mistaken, to admit that they do not believe God's word, or to claim that the Pope is grossly misinterpreting the Bible, unquote. While Griset anchors his argument in appeals to specific biblical texts, the heart of the matter for him still centers on moral absolutes and the church's teaching authority. John Finnis claims to offer an alternative to the common re but reductionist reading of the encyclical that it's really about sex. Instead, he argues, its real point is faith. But much like Griset, most of his analysis is devoted to offering an indictment of proportionalist reasoning. The invocation of proportionate reason to create exceptions to moral absolutes allows the genie out of the bottle to such a degree that no reason for such a moral action could ever be disqualified. The immediate result is that the basis of moral judgment is shifted to, quote, whatever one feels appropriate, all things considered, unquote. The more long-term result is the broader cultural impact. The introduction of exceptions in regard to the teaching regarding contraception has resulted in widespread acceptance of abortion by Catholics in countries like the United States. But prob these problems are merely symptomatic of a deeper crisis of morality and belief in post-Christian culture, which appear in the church as reconceptions of revelation and faith. Such reconceptions need to be banished by solemn judgments of the magisterium which highlights their incompatibility with Christian faith, as Veritatis Splendor shows the incompatibility of the denial of moral absolutes with Catholic teaching. Finnis does, therefore, consider the encyclical in a larger context, but the things on which he focuses in his reading of the document are familiar. Absolute moral norms, the pitfalls of proportionalism, and the need for authoritative teaching by the church. Absent in these analyses of Veritatis Splendor, our attention to John Paul II's significant engagement with scripture. This feature of the document did not go completely unnoticed by scholars. 
However, even when discussed, the encyclical's use of scripture was frequently attached to one of the contested methodological foci, which I mentioned. In the case of Brzee, individual biblical texts are called from the encyclical to refute revisionist claims to attempt, that attempt to diffuse or evade the idea of moral absolutes. For Curran, the invocation of scripture, including Jesus' meditation on the Jesus, including John Paul's meditation on Jesus' encounter with the rich young man, serves to reinforce the legal model of morality that dominates the encyclical. Gareth Moore sees the document's use of scripture as simply unsuccessful, an attempt to support its condemnation of modern moral theories which the scriptures do not address. I'm going to argue that these readings fail to do justice to the actual engagement with scripture in the document, particularly in its presentation of discipleship in its first chapter. A lot of these same commentators had very positive things to say about this section of the encyclical, despite of their overall disagreement or agreement with the rest of the document. Thus, McCormick gushed, quote, all Catholic moral theologians should and will welcome this beautiful Christ-centered presentation unfolded in chapter one, unquote. Grizet called it, quote, an inspiring articulation of the gospel's teaching about following Jesus, unquote. Summarizing the general good feeling generated by chapter one, Oliver O'Donovan remarked that, quote, everyone has had a nice word to say about the first section, unquote. However, as he noted, not everyone appreciated its innovative strength as a program for moral theology. In these pages, which shape, these pages reshape the moral discourse of the church as an evangelical proclamation, unquote. The typical readings of the document, both by critics and proponents that I've surveyed, su support the truth of O'Donovan's assertion. The first chapter was nice or even beautiful, but it had little to do with the rest of the letter. A more careful reading of the text reveals that it does make very strong claims about the nature of moral theology, which are relevant to the rest of the document. And it does this through the articulation of a dramatic biblical anthropology into which readers are invited as participants. John Paul II identifies the unnamed rich young man of Matthew 19 as a type of every human person, to use his words, who consciously or not approaches Christ the redeemer of man and questions him about morality, unquote. He is thus identified with Adam, an association that recalls not just his point of departure in the Theology of the Body catechesis, but Wojtyla's work as a playwright in his writings such as The Jeweler's Shop or The Radiation of Fatherhood. So the rich young man becomes John Q. Everyman, who wrestles with the moral good and questions concerning the meaning of life. Readers are encouraged to identify with the young man and to hear Jesus' words addressed to them in this dramatic encounter. This rereading of scripture is not just one addressed to spectators at a the theoretic, theatrical performance, but to participants in an existential drama. The young man's questions to Christ are those which well up from the depths of our own hearts, pulled from our lips because of the attractiveness of the person of Jesus. His answers ring true because he is the answer to the existential dilemmas which bedevil the human heart, as the alpha and omega of human history, particularly in his incarnation and the mystery of the cross. In John Paul II's narration, this dramatic encounter on the stage, on the stage of the gospel 
references the commandments not to buttress a law-dominated morality, but to highlight their part, the, the part they play in the call to discipleship as a gift of grace. The commandments themselves are reflective of God's gracious initiative, but, quote, not even the most rigorous observance of the commandments succeeds in fulfilling the law, unquote. Instead, human beings still find themselves in slavery to sin, which makes God's law appear as alien and as a burden. The young man, like fallen Adam, is unable to take the next step. The perfection to which he is called requires, quote, a maturity in self-giving, which itself is a gift of grace. Discipleship, therefore, requires an interior transformation, affected through participation in the sacraments, which provide the source and power for the gift of self in love in union with Christ's own Eucharistic self-gift. Following Jesus is therefore not exterior imitation based on moral norms or on the law, but interior transformation in conformity with Christ lived in the Holy Spirit, who himself is the new law of Christian life. This transformation contains the happiness which the young man seeks. This call to transformation and discipleship is not addressed to an elite few, but to all. The universal call to holiness reaffirmed at Vatican II is articulated through the dramatic call to perfection, the perfection of discipleship given here to the young man. Quote, the invitation, go sell your possessions and give money to the poor, and the promise you will have treasure in heaven are meant for everyone, because they bring out the full meaning of the commandment of love of neighbor. Just as the invitation which follows, come follow me, is the new specific form of the commandment of the love of God, unquote. To make this identification is already a significant departure from the standard Catholic reading of the text, which saw in this interlocutor of Jesus a pious layman who kept the commandments and is now called to the perfection of the evangelical councils. The young man challenged with this general invitation shows once again the transcendence of the human person called, for, called to the gift of self and love, vertically in the love of God and horizontally in love of neighbor. Sadly, the young man turns away from this call, even offered as a gift, demonstrating human freedom in its negative form. This dramatic anthropology gleaned from the encounter between Jesus and the rich young man as every man is not limited to the first chapter of Veritatis Splendor. It echoes through the rest of the document. The inviolability of the commandments safeguarded in the defense of absolute moral norms reinforces the need for grace to embrace the call to discipleship offered as a gift. Moral norms thus protect but do not exhaust the corresponding gift of oneself in love as a response to this gracious call a, call, a truth eloquently proclaimed in the sacrifice of the martyrs. This response is undertaken in less dramatic form by the choice of particular goods pursued in concrete moral choices. The choice of those goods which specify the moral object of particular acts is therefore necessarily a first person endeavor on the part of the disciple. To quote the encyclical, to understand the moral object, one must place oneself in the perspective of the acting person. The transcendence of the person to freely respond to God's invitation requires this. The authority of the church to defend genuine moral goods and the norms which protect them is necessary to make it a place where this dramatic encounter between Christ and the human person can occur. 
Thus understood, morality is not primarily about obedience to rules, but about a transformative encounter with Christ who reveals us to ourselves. The connections identified here between the dramatic biblical anthropology of chapter one and the rest of the document is not an exhaustive list. However, they do help challenge a reading of the document which minimizes the importance of chapter one to mere biblical perinesis while focusing on the real issues contained in chapter two. O'Donovan is correct in underscoring the potentially revolutionary character of chapter one for the church's moral teaching. For John Paul II, moral theology both proceeds from and is ordered to an encounter between the human person and the person of Christ. The church and its teaching and sacramental life is the place where this transformative encounter takes place. These notes sounded most forcefully in the document's first chapter are reprised in different ways and in different style and subject matter in those which follow. As in the case of the theology of the body catechesis, the effort to fit John Paul II's teaching in Veritatis Splendor into the lines of post-Humani Vitae debate leads to a reduction and loss of its anthropological depth. And as in the case of those catechesis on the body, that which is lost is precisely that which makes it most engaging for the reader willing and able to put in the effort to engage the document. The appeal to experience in the context of the biblical drama of salvation enables, again, the reader to identify in and find him or herself as the one addressed and invited by Christ to the transformation through the gift call of discipleship. Deeper engagement with scripture and livelier contact with the mystery of Christ and the history of salvation are keys to the renewal of moral theology called for by the Second Vatican Council. These marks are prominently displayed in the dramatic biblical anthropology of the opening chapter of Veritatis Splendor. An examination of the implications of taking the encounter with Christ as the starting point and goal of moral theology offers a rich vein for reconceptualizing the, moral, the methodology of the discipline in conjunction with the field's deeper engagement with scripture and virtue ethics. To conclude, I've argued that the reception of Pope John Paul II's teaching within Catholic moral theology in the United States to this point has been partial at best. A significant reason for this uneven reception is that both proponents and critics of his teaching have sought to plug some of his ideas into the contours of already existing debates within the field or the wider culture. This has clearly been the case with popular promotion of and critical reaction to the theology of the body catechesis, as well as with the typical readings of Veritatis Splendor by major revisionist and traditionalist scholars. In both of these cases, there has been a corresponding reduction or loss of the anthropological depth within the discussion of these teachings. It is as if both proponents and critics have plucked the fruit of individual insights or ideas which support their own positions while ignoring the underlying tree which supports and unifies them. That tree in the thought of John Paul II is the human person, a dynamic acting subject addressed by Christ in the existential drama of salvation and called to fulfillment through the grace-powered action expressive of the gift of self. The individual insights or ideas gleaned from the late Pope's thought are intelligible and fruitful because of the anthropology which supports and nourishes them. 
It is this anthropology which continues to account for the continuing appeal of Pope John Paul II's teaching some six years after his death. The appeal to experience in both the Theology of the Body, Catechesis, and Veritatis Splendor, again, encourages readers to identify in, to discover themselves in the biblical text under examination. Scripture, therefore, becomes the place to encounter Christ and allow him to engage the reader in a dialogue aimed at self-discovery. The process is simultaneously intellectually stimulating and ethically and spiritually challenging. Votiwa's Carmelite personalism, learned from John of the Cross, pulls the reader to search for ways to go beyond merely having faith to the praxis of living faith and bearing fruit in the Christian life. His anthropology is thus both dynamic and holistic, engaging the reader as a whole person. It is also relevant to a consideration of much more than individual norms concerning sexual behavior. There are other examples that for reasons of, and constraints of time and space, we could consider, I'm not going to develop here tonight, um, but there are other narratives out there about John Paul II's moral theology that he adopts one kind of anthropology in his sexual and life teaching and a completely different kind of anthropology and worldview, a historically conscious worldview in his social teaching. I think that you can be challenged because there is a unified anthropology that the Pope utilizes and employs in those diverse areas of his teaching, both in the area of sexuality and life issues and in his social teaching. Um, ultimately, only time will tell and indicate the full measure of Pope John Paul II's impact on the field of Catholic moral theology in the United States and throughout the world. I've tried to indicate some of the reasons as to why the reception of that teaching to this point has been incomplete. There is an anthropological depth and coherence in John Paul II's thought that resists its reduction either to a simple answer to a problem indicated by a, by a pre-existing debate. And it is this underlying vision of the person which continues to draw students and scholars to consider his thought as a method for engaging scripture and experience in fashioning a compelling account of Christian moral life. This holistic anthropo anthropological vision points the way to the heart of the renewal of moral theology for which the Second Vatican Council called. It may well be that this proves to be Pope John Paul II's most lasting contribution to the field. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.